back to the Image Method podcast, a show about making moving images. This is an enhanced podcast, meaning that the images discussed on the show appear as album artwork in iTunes. Or you can play the downloaded M4A file with QuickTime iTunes and QuickTime are both free programs. They both run on the Mac and the PC, and you can find them where you find all our show notes, which is our website at imagemethod.blogspot.com. That's imagemethod.blogspot.com. The podcast has been away for a few months because I've been very busy working on other projects. I recently took a job, a full-time job, producing videos, and it's true what they say about full-time jobs. They're very, very time-consuming. I apologize for not being able to keep up, and I want to thank you for all the emails I got asking about the status of the show. I really appreciate all your support and encouragement. I'm trying to... Uh, get all the episodes made. Your emails really help. Thank you so much. Again, thank you for listening and thank you for telling your friends about the show. This episode, we're talking about time based composition. And what I mean by that is well, you all know what composition means, which is how elements are arranged in the frame so that relationships perform between those elements. Time-based composition is the same thing, but the arrangement of elements is an arrangement over time, an arrangement of sequential events. Of course, this concept is nothing new. All time-based arts, music, literature, poetry, dance, and stuff like that, they all have time-based composition to consider. This is where motion picture is most distinct from other visual arts like photography and drawing and painting. I think it's fair to say that to quote-unquote make the most of the motion picture medium, your shots should use the time element, the durational aspect of the medium. So what I'm talking about is arc. People often talk about arc in a story or arc in a character but every shot could also have an arc too. In other words, when you compare the end of a shot to the beginning of a shot, what's different about the two? In other words, what change has occurred over the course of that shot? How does the end different from the beginning? What kind of change is the right kind of change? There are no rules, but I recommend change that increases the interesting elements, therefore dollying in for the purpose of increasing the size of things in the frame. Things that grow are more interesting than things that shrink. Also, as your shot progresses, show the audience new information. New information, always better than old information, I always say. And last, the endings of shots are more important than the beginnings of shots. It's the same thing with jokes and the same with awkward situations. The important thing is how they end, not how they started. Um, So as an example of time-based composition that I really admire... I want to take a look at a few scenes from the film The Shawshank Redemption from 1994, a film directed by Frank Darabont, production designed by Terrence Marsh, and photographed by Roger Deakins. Roger Deakins' work throughout his entire career is always typified by a fundamental principle that the photography serves the story and it never overshadows the narrative. 
His work is never repetitive and yet always subtle. You can look at the work he's done with the Coen brothers ever since Barton Fink, but also the work he's done with other directors on films like A Beautiful Mind and House of Sand and Fog and Jarhead. And the film we're going to talk about today, Shawshank Redemption, Deakins has never won the Academy Award, but he's been nominated several times, including for his work on Shawshank Redemption, and this year, where he's been nominated twice. I expect he'll win the award this year for his work on the latest Coen Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men. If you haven't seen the film yet, I recommend it highly. It's beautiful cinematography and a really fine example of Roger Deakins' approach um, to photography, where he breaks new ground in such subtle ways, working under the constraint of always serving the story. Um, it, it's, it really is a masterpiece and a very subtle one uh, at that. If you haven't seen the movie, again, uh, go check it out. Um, Shawshank Redemption, uh, based on a story by Stephen King, is the story of a banker named Andy Dufresne, played in the movie by Tim Robbins, um, who is a guy who is wrongly convicted of murder, sent to prison, and then escapes from prison. Sorry, I hope that didn't spoil the ending for you. I mean, the film's uh, over a decade old. You probably should have seen it by now. Anyway, if you haven't seen it lately, go see it. Uh, go rent it immediately. It's. It, I'm not going to be able to really show full movie clips during this podcast. It's more like a slideshow, so um, it's not at all like a movie experience. I just want to warn you at the outset. We will look at a few scenes from Shawshank Redemption, and we. Um, this is probably a good time for me to remind you that all the images I refer to in the show can be seen with iTunes, um, where the images show up as album artwork or in if you play the M4A file in QuickTime, you can also see all the images. And you can also see all the images just by going to our website at imagemethod.blogspot.com. That's imagemethod.blogspot.com. That's all the images will be posted there as well as other stuff, ways to contact us and keep in touch and things like that. The first thing I want to talk about is the opening shot of the movie where... We start off looking at a house in a night exterior, and as the camera dollies back into the frame on the right-hand side, we start to see an outline of a car, and then eventually we see the figure of a man sitting behind the wheel of that car. And then the camera starts to move forward along the same dolly track to a profile medium close-up of the man sitting behind the wheel of the car. Um, what I love about this shot as an example is it shows how simply you can design a shot with a very high storytelling value. There's nothing very complicated about this shot, actually. But it does pass a fundamental test, which is that nothing of what's in the frame at the end of the shot is also in the frame at the start of the shot. There was a change in the content of the shot over time. So if you look at it again, we start off at the house, and eventually we bring things into the frame as, um, as the audience wants to know more and more, and new things are shown to them, but never really completely all the way shown to them, but rather the story gets doled out 
in images in uh, kind of these dribs and drabs of information. So eventually we end up at an image of a uh, medium close-up of a guy where we started at a um, wide shot of a house, night exterior. So um, again, look at the this shot start to finish, the first frame to the last frame. Very clearly, all of the um, information is different. There's been an evolution of the content of the frame, and that is a very elegant uh, shot. The shot was also just a 90-degree pan. Um, and they get more shots. If you look at the whole scene in the movie, they get more, um, th there's more angles they get out of very simple looking lighting in this night exterior in a rural location. So, um, in this next scene from the profile medium close up, um, Andy reaches for a prop in the glove box. And what I love about this shot is it it's a use of props as a way to to dole out the story in a very controlled manner. So Andy reaches for the glove box, we go to the close-up, and we see his hand in the glove box, and he doesn't pull out the gun, he pulls out a wrapped-up handkerchief, and eventually unwraps it to reveal the gun um, after a, a short time. So he very ritualistically, with um, the use of props, kind of make the uh, passing of information onto the audience into this sort of ritualistic um, process. In this next scene where Red walks into the parole board, the scene starts off with fading up from black into these bars into the over black and then the bars pull off to the left and they become a shot of a window off in the black distance and a face beyond a grate and that window be then be oh, becomes a door and the door opens and becomes a shot of five men sitting at a table so what I love about this shot is it's done so simply and so kind of uh, expressionistically um, as to show you hardly anything at all. There are no pans in the shot. There's barely any set pieces. Um, and eventually the shot becomes an over-the-shoulder shot of our character before the um, sequence moves on with the reverse angle of um, the character introduction of the red character played by Morgan Freeman in the movie. So let's take another look at it. The shot opens up, vertical bars over black, then it becomes a little square off in the distance with a face behind it, which becomes a door, a rectangle within a rectangle within a rectangle, a shot of five men at a table, and then an over the shoulder of our main character, and it's been a POV the whole time. The character walks into his own POV, and then the reverse angle um, medium shot of our character for the first time, which also incidentally does a push in after he starts his uh, dialogue. Um, he takes a chair right in front of him and, and, and positions himself, positions, positions the character so that um, the camera can continue to do a push in um, right into his face. So uh, let's take a look at the start of the shot to the end of the shot. And you can see, uh, again, it's a very fine example of nothing from the ending matches the beginning. And that's a very nice indication of a well-designed shot. In this third sequence where Andy is walking to his cell for the first time, what I love about this is that it really shows how distance from the camera 
can mean so much in setting up the shot. So what you see here is Andy walking toward the camera in a full shot and the camera is looking down the walkway of the cells and the camera is dollying back with the character but at a slower rate so that the character walking faster also increases his size on the screen. So he ends up into this medium shot where Roger Deakins has a light on him right in this key moment and as he passes beyond that sort of peak moment in this uh, change in the shot, um, Tim Robbins' character as he walks past the camera motivates a pan off to the right where we then um, it's revealed that the red character played by Morgan Freeman is um, watching Tim Robbins go by. So um, again, it's a very simple shot and the, the sequence continues. We cut uh, to the other side of the 180, but it's one of those passable ones. Uh, we take the position of inside the cell. Tim Robbins walks toward the camera through the doorway of the cell, starts to experience the cell for the first time and the camera starts to move away from the from the character, revealing and allowing the character's reaction to the space mirror the camera's inclusion of the space into the shot. So at this point, when the camera pulls back, the character is getting less important and the room is getting more important as um, uh, any prison cell would be uh, become a character to any prison movie. It's pretty, um, pretty obvious that. Um, and then uh, ending the sequence, which again started coming out of the title sequence, um, is this, this shot I love of drastic underexposure where the character ends in a silhouette of dark on dark. So let's take another look at it again. Andy walks from the full shot. As he moves into the medium shot, the, the shot peeks out. And as he starts to exit the frame, frame right, he motivates a pan off into the Morgan Freeman character, which ends the shot. So that shot, even though it's a pan of only about 20 degrees, passes the test of having the ending of the shot and the beginning of the shot being very, very different, with every pixel being different than the pixel that started out um, the shot. So um, this sequence continues on where we see a medium shot of Andy as he walks into his cell. He starts off as a silhouette, walks through the door of his cell where we, the viewer, are already waiting for him, where we can see both his eyes react to the environment that he just entered, and we pull back and experience the environment a moment after the character experiences it. And then the filmmakers finish it off with this beautiful, um, dark, expressionistic low point um, in the movie for our character, uh, being that it is a uh, redemptive movie, as the title uh, would indicate. Um, the last scene I want to look at from the Shawshank Redemption is the scene where Andy arrives at the prison for the first time, and I just want to click through some of the stills as I play the musical cue uh, by composer Thomas Newman, and then we'll go back over the images and uh, talk more closely about them. But this is a beautiful sequence, and uh, I just want to do my best to kind of represent it as it was designed um, to freshen your memory as best I can. So let's take a look at the scene with the music.
Andy came to Shawshank Prison in early 1947 for murdering his wife and the fellow she was banging. On the outside, he'd been vice president of a large Portland bank. Good work for a man as young as he was. back and take a closer look at this shot. It starts off as a shot of a bus on the road, high angle. And then as the bus turns the corner, it, the shot slowly becomes about a building, about the prison. And as we approach the prison and the music swells up, we go over the wall of the prison to take this beautifully composed God's eye view of the prisoners in the cell who are all moving in this one direction and are passing this this cross or this intersection of paths in the prison yard um, which is perfectly placed in the um, left hand third of the image and then as the cam as the helicopter um, cuts through this uh, flag of the state of Maine cuts right through the frame at a perfect position and then the shot curves around and as the camera is pulled to the right by the helicopter pilot um, you see the bus entering in from upstage uh, coming downstage toward the frame and the bus is again where we started this whole sequence from this whole shot from and it ends up on that bus uh, in the end and then um, we cut to into the bus where we we're doing a push-in on the Andy character accompanied by a voiceover by Morgan Freeman even this shot here of the bus pulling in, we the shot starts off with just a close-up of hands on a gate, and then the movement on screen opens that gate, and the shot becomes about the bus, and the bus pulls into the frame, moving toward the camera, and then we cut to inside the bus. So there's always this inside-outside angle, reverse angle, close-up, cut to POV kind of one-two rhythm to these sequence of shots or the logic of the edit. So we're seeing things from multiple angles. And then as the camera cuts from the, the, the passengers in the bus POV or Andy's POV, you could say, it reveals this new character, the Hadley guard character, and the music takes a minor key mode at that point. I love this shot on the guard tower because what's happening in this shot is the guards are coming out of the tower toward the camera and the camera is moving toward them so there's this opposite motion going on of the action on screen and the camera moving in opposite or perpendicular directions. So as the camera pushes into the guard tower, the guards come toward the camera and the shot goes from a two medium goes from a and as the shot goes from a full two shot of these guards, it becomes an over the shoulder and then a POV of the guard, of the bus down below. So again, the evolution of that shot, again, panning only 90 degrees, um, but also tilting down uh, to make that a really dynamic frame. But that t 
tilt down, remember, starts from the decision to get the high angle to begin with. Very particular to this location, but there's something about just changing the, ge the geography of your shots and getting high angles where um, perhaps they make no sense. Just by changing the verticality of shots, um, be the, be, whether you're shooting from a second floor window or a crane or whether you're um, having an ex having an having a or whether you're having a cause to put the camera on the floor, you're you're changing, you're you're altering the number of angles you're using, but you're also using that vertical element instead of just the element of a of the Earth we're all used to, which is walking around laterally parallel to the surface of the Earth. That probably didn't make any sense. I'll probably edit that out, but. I've edited some things out of this sequence, but I love the way the arrival at Shawshank sequence ends, which is this shot of Tim Robbins looking around and back to his POV and looking around again. And at the end of the sequence, you go from this medium close-up to... Um, him looking above him as the walls start to close in around him and the camera and the film and the film cuts to his POV and we see the walls and the camera tilts up and the walls get taller and we see the last glimmer of skylight there and the skylight gets smaller and the black starts to take over as he walks uh, into the bowels of the prison um, presumably never to return uh, into the skylight. I love that sequence, and it all starts off with the amazing helicopter piloting of Bobby Zajunk and the gyrosphere operator Mike Kellum, who operated the camera on that shot. That is just a beautiful shot, and I love it because the shot is always a good composition. As the camera moves, the shot just evolves from one excellent composition to another excellent composition. So the shot just morphs seamlessly into um, a beautiful and interesting shot until the very end of the shot. So it's just a seamless, well-designed, wonderfully uh, executed shot. So I always uh, admire that. Um, good, good, excellent cam work and excellent shot design. I think because this is such uh, an, an inarguably beautiful sequence, it's incumbent upon those inquiring minds to ask, why does this sequence work so well? And these are my theories as to why, and that is that each shot advances the story and builds in a way that's not tiresome or redundant. Um, the the Secondly, the entire sequence is designed so that the camera is jumping around to many different camera angles. It's up in the sky, it's from inside the bus, it's low angles and then it's high angles. Um, the angles are just very widely varied. And the shots are also structured in these couplets. They function in units of pairs, um, like couplets in poetry. Um, there's shot, reverse shot, close-ups to reverse POVs. There's, um, there's, a, there's a very strong sequential structure in the flow of successive shots, 
when there you have this kind of call response sort of um, couplet structure to them. So that kind of makes an, uh, an internal structure in a sequence that is very strong. Uh, and last, uh, individual shots have arcs to them. Their endings and their beginnings are different. They do things, um, they experience change within a shot. So those are my theories as to why the sequence works so well. Um, uh, and a lot of other reasons. That's an oversimplification, but uh, I do think it's an amazing uh, sequence and worth uh, looking at uh, over and over again. For this episode's totally well-known trade secrets, I want to talk about editing since we are talking about the uh, time-based composition. I want to discuss the totally well-known trade secret that editing is largely a filmmaker playing along with the natural rhythms of the action on screen. Similar to a musician playing along with other musicians, the timing of the cuts should fit in with the action on screen. Every action has a start and a stop and therefore a timing is created naturally. Some actions have even more of a rhythm like walking, breathing, the cadence of the way a character talks and stuff like that. Um, Editing or the placements of cuts should be guided by these natural rhythms. And this goes for camera moves too. We don't often think of camera moves this way, but as I hope to show in this episode, movements in the camera can also function as edits in the film. They order and they time the flow of information to the audience. That's it for this episode of the Image Method Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep in touch or you'd like to look at the images of the show, go to our show blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. That's imagemethod, one word, .blogspot.com. You can also email us at imagemethod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. My name is TW. You're awesome, and thank you very much. Jesus, don't you know that you could have died? You should have died. Or with the monsters at all. Monsters who walk the earth.